Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. All right. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you. My name is Matt Boyd, and I'm the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, and we are glad that you have chosen to worship with us this weekend, whether you're a regular or whether it is your very first time. I hope that you uh, enjoy your time with us. I don't know about you all, but it has been a blessing to be led by worship and song by Ben and Becca McGinnis over the last few weeks. Uh, go ahead and give them a virtual hand clap if you're joining us online, and uh, if you're joining us in person, then, then go ahead and give them a hand clap this morning. It's funny, about four years ago, uh, Ben and I were talking with one another. Uh, this is when I still lived on the East Coast. And just talking about this idea of a remote worship leading and virtual worship leading, what, what could that look like? And we kind of kicked the can a little bit, but, but ultimately thought, that's weird. We don't really know how that would work. And here we are four years later. Neither one of us knew it would take a pandemic to uh, actually make this happen. And so, uh, Ben, let's not wait next time for a pandemic. Let's just go ahead and if we think there's a good idea, let's go ahead and uh, go with it. But we truly appreciate you guys uh, and what you've uh, done for us the last several weeks and uh, just blessing us and leading us in worship in song. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time or perhaps this uh, you've missed the last couple of weeks, we are uh, towards the beginning of a brand new series that we are calling Kingdom Manifesto, where we have been studying the greatest sermon ever preached, uh, actually preached by Jesus himself. Uh, this sermon is most commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, just because Jesus went up on a mount whenever he delivered this sermon. Now, the sermon in its entirety is going to take us several months to work through, and each week builds upon the previous weeks as we kind of see these themes uh, develop and come into fruition. And so if you have missed the first two sermons or one of those sermons, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Um, it's kind of like watching your favorite TV show, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't watch the newest episode if you missed the previous weeks. You would normally go back and, and watch that one first because you don't want to miss any of the key things that have happened. So it's the same way with, with uh, our sermon series, that you're really going to miss some key components if you don't go back and listen to the other ones. Even things that I may say this week may not make sense if you don't go back and listen to the other sermon. Uh, go ahead and stick with us this morning and listen, but then I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's, and then you can kind of link those together. Now, last week, what we did look at, just to catch us up to speed, is we looked at the eight central characteristics that Jesus gave to his followers in which he expects them to exhibit and display in their everyday lives. These eight characteristics are known as the Beatitudes. And it's in these Beatitudes where we find this countercultural lifestyle that we have been looking at each and every week of a Christian. We saw in these Beatitudes as by these that Jesus measures the standard of whether a person loves God, loves themselves, and loves others. By seeing that people who are humble, those who work for righteousness and justice, and those who create reconciliation. And we finished up last week with the Beatitudes by saying that really what we saw is that there's a revolution of evaluation as Jesus truly blesses those who are his followers. And it's by those characteristics that the world will know that you are truly a follower of Jesus. It's in those characteristics that we kind of see the who's in and who's, who's out as far as who's faking it and who's not faking it, who is legitimate, who is genuine in following the Lord, because those characteristics will be exhibited and displayed from our lives as an overflow of Jesus working in and through us. Now this week we're going to see Jesus follow up on those Beatitudes using two metaphors. He's going to use salt and light. 
And he's going to use these to indicate the influence for good which Christians will utilize in the community if and only if we remain our distinctive Christian character as described in the Beatitudes. Think of it this way. If the Beatitudes from last week describe the essential character of a disciple of Jesus, the salt and light metaphors we'll look at today indicate their influence for good in the world. And so we see last week these characteristics that we are to live out, and then this week we'll see that this is the influence we will have by living those out in the world. Now imagine the skeptics listening to Jesus. They, they had to be thinking, you know, we had these, these crowds, so I imagine that the crowds were, were looking in and thinking, what possible influence could these people have as described in the Beatitudes. I mean, these people are going to live in a very difficult and challenging world. What, what possible influence could the meek have? Could the poor have? Could the, could the humble have? Would they not simply be overwhelmed by the forces of evil? They had to be thinking, like, they're, they're not going to survive. And these are, these are like lambs going out amongst wolves, and they are just going to be eaten up. They had to be thinking, what can they accomplish if their appetite is ultimately for righteousness? And the only weapon that they carry with them is the, the pure in heart. I mean, what, what good can they do? Are these people not too weak to achieve anything, especially if they are considered the, the small minority of the world? But then we see Jesus. Jesus, who obviously did not share the skepticism of the crowds. Typical of Jesus, what we see him do is Jesus saw things completely opposite. Jesus saw things and he flipped them upside down on their head. He had already told his followers, remember he's teaching the crowds, but it's really his disciples who he's kind of honing in on. He already told them that you will be persecuted. And he's going to show them this week what the job of the church is to show the world, even in the face of persecution, a different way of living altogether. And so the main purpose of the sermon this morning is to show you the basic truth of what lies behind the salt and light metaphors that we see Jesus use. What is common to them both. And what we're going to see is that the church and the world are two distinct communities and that they should look distinct from one another. Now, we live in a day in, in the United States where the, the lines are often blurred between church and the world. And what we'll see this morning is that we, the church, were always meant to be a distinct community. The world is a dark place. And really, if you think about the world, it has little to no light of its own. In fact, only, the only light the world has is what we call kind of common grace. It's still grace that God has given to it. But there's little to no light in the world, which is why the church is called to be the light of the world. The world also shows a constant tendency to self-deteriorate. I mean, just look at 2020, okay? Let's just leave that right there. But the world can do nothing of its own to stop this deterioration. As I look around and people are looking for answers and seeking truth and seeking hope and seeking peace, I keep coming back to this idea that you won't find it in and of yourselves because what's going to happen is the world's going to continue to deteriorate because it needs something from outside itself introduced, which is why we, church, are called to be salts to help stop the process of social decay. Now, I remember in high school, I worked at a, uh, a hot dog restaurant. And uh, actually on weekends, I had to wear a hot dog costume. So I used to walk around and be a, a hot dog by the street and wave to people and try to get them to come in and buy a hot dog. But I'd only been working there for a couple of weeks and it was a slow afternoon. It was just myself and the owner. And the owner said, I'm going to go run some errands. And so he said, Matt, I'm going to teach you how to make chili. And so he got all the ingredients, it was a huge pot of chili. It's supposed to last us for a couple of weeks. And he left to go. And then a few minutes later, I got a crowd of people in there. 
So I'm all by myself. So I have to go to the order, register and take all their orders. I have to go and make all their hot dogs. I have to drop fries and then call their orders whenever it's ready. So that took 15 minutes or more. Well, the chili's cooking. So I went back and I stirred the chili as he told me. But then I made a crucial mistake. Not only did I stir the chili, I scraped the bottom of the chili because I didn't know any better. Now, those of you who cook and you know how to cook, you know exactly what I did wrong. By scraping the bottom of the chili, I scraped all the burnt part. And, and so the chili would have been fine if I had just stirred it, but I scraped all the burnt pieces into the chili and mixed it in. And so now what we had was a $30 pot of burnt chili that we had to throw out. Now, my boss got really, really mad. He yelled at me. He cussed at me. I thought I was going to get fired, but thankfully I did not. But I'll tell you that story because this morning we're going to see something kind of similar with this idea of salt and what it is that we are to be as Christ followers. And that if we lose our saltiness, that we're really of no use, that we're really no good, just like that chili had to be thrown out. So go ahead and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 5. We'll pick up in verses 13 through 16. Once again, it's Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then um, I'll pray for us, and we'll kind of break it down verse by verse. Go ahead and read with me. Since you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Go ahead and uh, pray with me this morning. God, we thank you so much for another Sunday where we can gather together as your church. God, whether it be online or ever at our space in Northeast Portland, but God, we ask that this morning that you would help us see our kingdom impact. God, that you would help us see our role as salt and light in the world and our influence as we live out the Beatitudes we looked at last week in a countercultural way. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. So go ahead and look back at verse 13 with me. Verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, what in the world does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Let's talk about salt for a minute. What is salt good for? Or what is, what is salt used for? Now, when we think about salt, we typically think about cooking or, or maybe sitting down for a meal and realizing, man, it needs just a little extra flavor on this. It needs a little bit of a flavor enhancer, so we'll sprinkle some salt on it. But salt's beneficial in a number of ways. Seasoning is one of those. It's probably the most commonly one that we use today, but it's also used as a preservative. And so if you remember, if you think about the context, they did not have Kenmore or Samsung refrigerators in their houses. They had no way to refrigerate their, their meat and their fish. And so in order to preserve the meat and fish beyond just a, an hour, they had to use salt on it. And so just like salt is beneficial in a number of ways here, so too the disciples of Jesus are beneficial influencers on the world for good. The affirmation in this verse is straightforward. It says, you are salt to the world. So it's affirmed to us that we are this. This means that when each community is itself and is true to itself, that the world will decay like rotten fish or meat without salt. And while the church, our role is to hinder this decay. The effectiveness of salt, however, is conditional. It tells us here in this verse, it must retain its saltiness. Now, technically, salt can never lose its saltiness. 
but it can become contaminated if mixed with other impurities. And when it becomes contaminated, it's basically useless and dangerous. As I was preparing for this message, I learned that desalted salt is unfit for even manure, for cow dung. So what that means for us Portlanders is that we would not put unsalted salt in our compost bins because it would be bad for everything else in there and it would mess up the compost bin and it would mess up the whole process of what they do with compost. And so what was properly called salt in that day is in fact a white powder, likely from the Dead Sea. If you're familiar with the Dead Sea, it's, it's so salty that nothing can live in it. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. They say it's so much salt in it that you can put a newspaper down and you can actually float on it. And while this, this powder contains sodium chloride, it also contained many other things because at that time there were no refineries. There was no way to refine out all the other um, particles to make it salt. And so it was most easily washed out. Now, the residue of white powder that was left over, it still looked like salt, and it was still no doubt called salt. But it neither acted or tasted like salt. It was just road dust. And so think about this as our roles. If Christians, as, if as Christ followers, if, if called out ones, we become assimilated to non-Christians, to the world around us, and contaminated by the impurities of this world, we lose our influence. And our influence in and on society depends on not being identical, but being distinct to the world. We are not to look like the world. We are not to mimic the world. And so once again, as we have found ourselves in the city of Portland, we should look very different than most of the culture who is around us because we are a distinct group of people who have been called out for the glory of Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. We are not to look identical to the world. And so look at your own life. Kind of use this time to inspect your own life. Does your, does your own life look very similar to the world around you? Or does it look distinct because of what Christ has done in you? A Christian's saltiness is, is a Christian's character as depicted in the Beatitudes. Committed Christian discipleship is exemplified in both deed and word. And so if Christians become assimilated to non-Christians and contaminated by the impurities of the world, we'll lose that influence. And so our influence doesn't depend on becoming just like the world. I think sometimes we think, man, I'll be more influential if I look just like them. If I'm able to do all the gimmicks and shows and, just, and, and everything I do looks just like the world. No, it's completely opposite. Our influence comes because we're distinct as the world watches and sees something that, man, I, I need that. I long for that. I desire that. Dr. Lloyd Jones emphasizes this. He says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. Otherwise, if we Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians, we are useless. We might as well be discarded like saltless salt, thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. So here we see Jesus introduce his second metaphor with a similar affirmation, verse 14. It says, you are the light of the world. A city, set on a, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. As with salt, so with light, the affirmation is followed by a condition. It says, let your light shine before men. So it tells us what it is. It tells us we are light, and then it tells us what to do with that light. And so as Jesus' disciples, we have the kingdom life within us as a living testimony to those in the world who do not yet have light. And so we have a light, and we are to show it to those around us because they don't have light. Now, what did, what did Jesus mean when he said that Christians must be the light of the world? Here's what he meant. Jesus meant that we are to be a reflection of the bright light of Jesus himself to the world around us. So the reason we have light is because of his light, and it's his light through us that now is a, a beacon of light to the world around us. And so it's really what, 
what we are reflecting the image of our Savior. And so two things to point out there. First is our light as Christians is something which is meant to be seen. I think sometimes you, you can become a Christian in a, in a hard culture like where we live and think, man, I'm just going to kind of hide this to myself. Like, I don't want to tell my neighbors I'm a Christ follower. Uh, I don't, I don't want to tell them that I go to church on the weekends. I don't want to tell them that I'm part of this community of faith. Um, maybe in my case, maybe I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to tell them I'm a pastor. But no, it says we are to let our light shine. And so it's, it's meant to be seen, both in the church and outside the church. Now, this is meant to be done in both word and deed. Told you this many times. We're not going to outserve the city of Portland. And so, yes, there, there is some, some deed to be done, some work to be done, but we're also going to have to do it in word and proclaim this message just like Jesus came and proclaimed the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that we are to proclaim the truth of the gospel to the world around us. The second thing is our light is meant to be a guide. A light, think about light, it's something to make the path clear. I think now it's getting dark early, uh, which, which I do not like at this time of year, but even walking around my driveway or out to take the trash bins out last night, we've got a security light that'll, a motion detected one, it'll, it'll pop on and it helps because I'm not going to all of a sudden trip over a mound of dirt or rocks or something or a, a basketball that one of the kids would have left out because the path has been made clear by the light that's shining around me. And so in the same way as Christians, we are to make the way clear to others as we let our light shine. So our lights are to be seen, our lights are to be a guide to others and our lights are to be a warning of the dangerous lies within darkness. And so if our world does not have light, and if they're full of darkness, our light gets to serve as a warning, as they notice the contrast between dark and lights. It tells us here that we are to be a town or a village nestling in a valley whose lights are concealed from view. No, we are not to be that. Sorry, we're not to be that. But we are to be a city set on a hill, a city that cannot be hidden, whose lights are clearly seen for miles around. You think about... We don't get a lamp, even now, you don't get a lamp and put it under a basket. I think about the, the lamps that we have in my house. We have them on end tables. We want them up high so they can illuminate a whole section of a room. We don't, we don't get a lamp and put it on the floor and then cover it up with a basket. And so as the disciples of Jesus, we are not to conceal the truth that we know or the truth of what we are. We're, we're not to hide that. We are to shine that bright wherever it is that we go. So if you're the only Christian at your job, then you should be the light that's in that place. If you're the only Christian on your street, then you are the light on that street. If you're the only Christian in your, your tribe or your hobbies or whatever it is that you do, then you are to be the light, and that should be very visible and very evident to those around you. Think about a community of, of Jesus people which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him altogether. So think, think if you were a church or we got together, man, let's just kind of keep this secret to ourselves and we'll kind of have this little holy huddle in this club. But what Jesus tells us here is that we have ceased to follow him in that, in that moment. Rather, we are to be ourselves. And what I mean by that is, is not, our, not ourselves before Christ, ourselves once we are in Christ. And so our true selves, once we are in Christ, we openly live this life describing the attitudes and we're not ashamed of Christ. Why, is it, why it is that we're meek? Why it is that we're humble? Why it is that we are peacemakers? Why, why it is that even in the face of persecution that we can rejoice in the Lord and why it is that we have light that we are letting shine. And so church, we need to rediscover the radiance of our Savior as exhibited in our faith. In a worried world, and we have a lot of worry today. So in a worried world, Christians should be the people who remain calm. In a depressed world, Christians should be the only people who still remain joyful in a pandemic world, church, we should be the only people who still have hope. In the most important election of our lifetime, which, by the way, I've heard that every election since I turned 18 and I could vote, 
Regardless, Christians should still be the only ones who aren't overly concerned about the outcome. Why? Because our ultimate hope and faith doesn't rest in a donkey or an elephant. Our ultimate hope and faith rests in a lamb, and the lamb is that of Jesus Christ. Whew, if I can get an amen on that one. If you are a follower of Jesus, being salt and light are not options for us. This is who we are. We are salt and light. And so what we see here is that Jesus assumes his disciples will be salt and light because they are his followers. They are blessed and they are obedient. Once again, there's not an option here. It's not, nah, I'm a Christian, but I don't really want to do this whole salt and light thing. Like, no, you are to do this if you are a Christ follower. But we aren't salt and light automatically. We are salt and light. It depends on the degree of which we are followers of Jesus. It depends on the degree of which we are seeking after the Lord. It depends on the degree of which we are resting in him. And if you think about both salt and light, these are images for the impact on something else. Salt impacts meat. Light impacts darkness. And so you salt the earth and you enlighten the earth. And that is our role as Christians. Now look at verses 15 and 16 with me again. It says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, the, we always have to remember the context. The typical lamp in a Jewish home was fairly small, and so it was placed on a stand to give the maximum illumination. Think about when we go camping here in the Pacific Northwest. We don't go camping with, with a lantern or even with a flashlight and, and, and put it down in the tent or put it underneath the picnic table. Put it underneath the picnic table when it gets dark, it'll give you a little bit of light, but just at your feet. But no, we usually put it up high, either on the picnic table or a lot of times when I go camping, we'll, we'll hang it from a branch in a tree because we want to have a maximum illumination on our camp spot. And especially whenever we're under a burn ban and can't have fires to light it up. And so it's the same way here that we, we aren't going to hide this thing. We're going to, we're going to let it have the maximum illumination, which is what we're also to do in our lives as Christ followers. And so we see a couple of important things here. First is that people are to see our good deeds. People are to see our good deeds. Not, not because we're trying to be showy, not because we're trying to say, look at me, look what I can do, but because we want our light to have the maximum illumination. And so as people see our good deeds, not at works-based salvation, please don't mishear me, but our good deeds are a natural overflow of our relationship with Jesus. It is so that they see our light and that our light may shine before them. The second important thing here is, is further we know that our good deeds ought not to draw attention to ourselves, but to God. And so even in the midst of these good deeds, you know, even if you do get credit, if you do get glory, like, man, you are, you are such this and this. Like, no, 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 it's because of Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. How many times are we guilty, myself included, of, of maybe someone saying, man, you are such a, you know, X, Y, or Z person. One of these, one of these beatitudes. And you kind of say, oh, thank you so much. You know, my, my, my parents raised me in a really good way. Or, man, that's just kind of who I am. Instead, what we should do is so, you know, I really appreciate that. And the only reason I have that is because of my relationship with Jesus. You know, and you can do it as simple as that. And, that. and that doesn't even sound that weird. It just sounds like, here's, here's why I have that. If you're wondering how to get that yourself, it's because of my relationship with Jesus and what Jesus did for me. And so in other words, the world will see the light of the kingdom through the good works done by Jesus' disciples and then and now, us today, with the result that the Father in heaven will be glorified. And so you think about God's mission. What's God's mission? Why did he send Jesus here? God's mission is to redeem a broken creation. A broken creation because of a result of our sin and disobedience. And he did this how? 
through sending Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection and his exaltation of Jesus. And it's through the gift of the Spirit of God's people in order to bring creation into its perfect order. So this was Jesus' mission, but then we as his followers, we'll see this later in Matthew uh, 28, which is known the Great Commission, that we've also been given the same exact mission as the followers of Jesus. And so the church's mission then is God's mission given to the church. Theologian Scott McKnight of this part of the Sermon on the Mount says, the, the story in the salt and light metaphors reveal the church's fundamental task is to meditate on God's presence as priest and to rule on behalf of God as kings and queens under God. Serving God and God's mission, our task is to represent God, to meditate God's goodness, God's grace, God's holiness, and God's justice to this world as those who represent God. Salt and light, then, are about not just what we do, but about who we are. Let me say that last part. Salt and light, then, are not about not just what we do, but it's actually about who we are. And so the salt and light metaphors which Jesus used have much to teach us about our Christian responsibilities in the world, even today. It's, it's amazing that all these years later, after we see from, from, from back here and when Jesus was physically walking on this earth to, to us today, that there is so much to teach us about our responsibility as Christ followers, as those called out, as those living a countercultural lifestyle. And as a result, I've adapted John Stott's three prominent lessons to learn from being salt and light. The first lesson is there, there's a fundamental difference between Christians and non-Christians, between the church and between the world. Now, while it's true that, that some professing Christians seem indistinguishable from non-Christians by their behavior, but the truth remains that Christians are to be different as light is from darkness and as different as salt is from decay. This is the basic theme of the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon here is it's really built on this assumption that Christians are to be different. And it issues that call to us to be different. Probably one of the greatest tragedies of the church today. I want us to hear this clearly. One of the greatest tragedies is there's this constant tendency we see to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing the Christian culture. And what I mean by that is it seems like year in and year out and decade after decade that the church is kind of bending and trying to fit within the prevailing culture as much as possible. Now, I'm not talking about being contextual. I'm all about contextual. I have a master's in being contextual in an overseas context or even here in Portland as I've moved from somewhere else. So I'm not talking about being contextual and dressing like the people and, and, and enjoying good coffee and, and you know being a Portland or Pacific Northwestern. That's not what I'm talking about here. But when we look at our values, we look at our ethics, and we look how we treat other people, and we look how we respond to even everything that's happened in 2020. That's, I think the church, a lot of times we're trying to bend and fit into the, the world and the, and the prevailing culture, but that is not what we are to do. We are called to be a Christian counter culture. And here's what this passage tells us. This passage gives us a warning. And church, I want us to heed this warning. It says, if we are indistinguishable from non-Christians, it tells us that we are useless. And what a tragedy that would be. What a tragedy it would be that it can be said sojourn church that we are useless because we are indistinguishable from the world. And church, may I remind us that we are to be called out and that we are to be indistinguishable. And it's in this indistinguishability that, that the world will see that we are different, that they will see our love for one another and our love for God. And I promise you, this is what will be attractive to the world around us. Maybe not initially, but in time, this is what will be attractive to those that we are trying to reach. The second lesson learned is that we must accept the responsibility which this distinction puts upon us. 
So we have been given this distinction that, that, that we are salt and light. And we are to live now in light of the task that we have been assigned in the kingdom, which was assigned by Jesus himself. And so think about it, we are not helpless and, and not powerless after all because we have Jesus Christ. We have his gospel. We have his ideals. We have access to Jesus' power. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate salt and light of this dark and rotten world. But he has given that salt and light to us to carry it out as we continue carrying out his great commission. And the third lesson that we are to learn from being salt and light is we must see our Christian responsibility twofold. The thing about the function of salt is largely negative. It prevents decay. And so that's one responsibility that we've been given. You think about our responsibility to function as light. It's a positive. It illuminates the darkness and, and makes whatever was dark light. And so Jesus calls us as his disciples, as his followers, to have a double influence on the world. Our negative influence by stopping the decay and a positive influence by bringing light into the darkness. So in some church, we are called to be both salt and light to the community and to the world. Now we are to be salt in word and deed. Yes, we are called to care for the poor. We are called to care for the sick. We are called to care for the vulnerable. And we, we typically think of that when we think of the church. But we're also called to do this. We're also called to care about creating a better social structure, which will guarantee justice and legislation and law enforcement. We are, we are called to care about the freedom and dignity of every individual created in the image of God. We are called to care about civil rights for minorities and the abolition of social and racial discrimination. You know, I'm not going to get too much into the election, and I'm not going to tell you who to vote for or any of those things. But I will say, I've, I've been studying and preparing in my own heart that I've realized that one way that we show love to others, to you know, love God, love others, love your neighbors, is by voting. And so I, all I'm going to ask you to do over the next couple of weeks is just seek the Lord on who it is. I'm talking about the local level and national level that we should be voting for as a way to love our neighbor. And then our, our, our second thing here is that we're, our vocation is to be the light of the world. Have you ever thought about that? Like someone said, what do you do for, for a job? I'm, I'm light. I'm light of the world. Now, I know that would sound really, really weird, but it might sound better than pastor. And then I can eventually get into that conversation with them. But our vocation is to be the light of the world. For the truth of the gospel is the light, and that is, it remains within us. We are called both to spread the gospel and to frame our manner of life in a way that is worthy of the gospel. So I think about this, you know, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be present with us, we pray for the Holy Spirit to go before us, and we do all those things. But have you ever thought about this? If you're the only Christian at your job or on your street or in your household, that the Holy Spirit is there. Do you know why the Holy Spirit is there? Because you're there. And the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and that is the light that you are to be shining before the others around you as they see your good deeds and works that allow you to point to Jesus. And so this is who we are, church. We are salt and we are lights. And so in what ways are you salt to others? In what ways are you the light to the world? May we go and live as those who are in Christ by being salt and by being light as we seek to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Church, let me pray for us. Let me pray that prayer over us. And then we're going to continue worshiping in song this week. God, we come to you and God, we want to embrace our role as salt and light. God, there is a decaying world around us. The world is 
turning in on itself. It's, it's bleeding out its side and is headed towards death and destruction. But God, you have called people, your followers, your disciples. You've called your church to be salt in the midst of that decay and to prevent the decay from happening. And so God, may we be salt. God, may we not lose our saltiness as we see that if we lose our saltiness, then we're no good other than to be trampled underfoot. And so God, help us as your people, as your church in the city of Portland to remain our saltiness. And God, we are called to be light. God, we're coming into a time of year as the, that we, our clocks fall back here in a couple of weeks and we, we just see the physical darkness and that most of us don't enjoy that. And we wake up, it's dark and it gets dark early afternoon and we just have a lot of darkness. But God, I think that's a small reflection of just the world that we live in. That's a reflection of the city that we live in that is full of darkness and there's just a little bit of light. God, as Christians are the minority here in the city of Portland. So God, may we let our light shine before men. May we let our light shine before our neighbors in Concordia and the Alberta Arts District and all of North and Northeast Portland and God, all over the city of Portland. And then may Sojourner Church and the other church in the city link arms and be a light, a light that is set upon a hill that all of the city can see. It's shining bright. And God, that we can eliminate, illuminate the darkness away from this place. God, we love you. We thank you for how you're working. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.